What's up, everybody? It's cock time. That's right. Time for another A Kings of King. Welcome to the Cock Corner. I'm one of your cockers, Michael Swain, and coming off half cocked with me is the biggest a- cock. That's Abe right. Epperson. I think uh, I'm physically the biggest mm-hmm. between. I mean, you're taller, but I think I'm wider, so it all makes sense. <laughs> Uh, are you referring to our whole bodies or just our cocks? You're taller, uh, but I'm wider. I was talking about bodies, but okay. you know, then I'd have several follow up questions and answers. Today, <laughs> we're talking about Stan My Bee, the Stephen King classic about a guy who's in love with a bee. Now, it's Stand by Me, of course. Are you doing it? Are you doing the song? I was just humming because that we look upon. Mm, shall I tumble and fall? Yeah, oh. the music rules. Hell That's yeah, part dude! Of it. Glad yeah. you said. It's definitely music. part of it. Soundtrack rules. Did you know that this uh, the uh, song "Stand by Me," which it was the movie was named after, was like hit number one after this movie. Oh, as a result? Yeah, as a result. I love when it this, a re, uh, resurgence of this track it got to number one i believe like that summer or something so the two like that i know are the strip peanuts made beagles the most popular breed of dog in america for like decades even though beagles are fine they're not like the most interesting breed of dog but that's what snoopy is and then uh what's the other one oh sideways Remember, oh, Every, there were, were all these think pieces about how Pinot Noir sales Pinot Noir, uh, went yeah. up and no one would buy Merlot anymore because they all want to be like <laughs> Paul Giamatti, apparently, because he's so cool. <laughs> Man, I like we're I don't even know how you do a study about the effectiveness of film because culturally it's just, you know, so it's tendrils are involved and people don't know where they get things from. But like, mm-hmm. man. You can t- you can you can't overstate the effectiveness of a cultural like m- moment in a movie uh, or, you know, like just surrounding what's going on in the movie uh, with the society itself. It, it's just it, it's kind of cool. And this is one of those movies, right? I think it's this- very fitting. Yeah, because this is a movie. One of my big takeaways was there are just oceans of films that are derivative of this movie. This is one of those uh, like Godhead stories that nailed so many tropes of the coming of age movie. Mm -hmm. This is like almost the coming of age movie for our times. (laughs) Like all coming Mm -hmm. of age movies owe this movie. Um, I have a confession. Mm -hmm. I had not seen Stand By Me until... Now, why the heck not? I don't know. Crazy oversight on your part. It's very strange because by the time that I got like really interested in like, so it just passed me by as a child. I don't know why. Uh, There's even a VHS tape, but I always thought of it as like a uh, seemed like a boring movie or something. I don't know. And then by the time that it got around to uh, when I was studying film, it was like, oh. So they, there's, it's a very simple story. I don't see why, why that would be like particularly good. And Mm -hmm. Stephen King, is he, is he good at that kind of thing? 
Is he good at just like uh, drama it's not tales? His, I don't think it's not his bailiwick, old chap. Yeah, yeah. and uh, so that's my justification for it. But uh, you know, as we'll see. And it was, uh, we should note it was a short story, not a full novel. And of course, yeah. that is notable. This is our first non horror Stephen King adaptation we've covered. Uh, originally based on a story called The Body, mm-hmm. uh, because it starts like all good stories start with someone saying, Hey, you kids want to see a dead body? That <laughs> always ends well. And talk uh, about a trope. This mm. is one of the earliest iterations of that trope, I think, where it's a group of teens going I to see a dead body. I think it's the beginning of it. Yeah. yeah. This is almost like, this story is almost like it if there was nothing scary. If it was just the teenager parts. It was just the teenager <laughs> parts. I'm sure most people have seen it. It's been a cultural, you know, touchstone for, for sure. a lot of people. Uh, do you want to get into the spectra? Yeah, but we should synopsize nevertheless because people uh, might need a refresher if they didn't watch it in prep. Let's go under the dome. Our best guess puts the dome at 20,000 feet, sir. Did he just call it a dome? You think we might be stuck in here a while? It's an elevator synopsis in the movie. I got this one, baby. Okay. Real easy, real quick, real simple. I'd say I, I got stand all by. aspects of it. You? Four kids go to see a dead body near some railroad tracks, only to find that what it means to be their own person. How about is, that? Is that it? Yeah. I think that's it. Right? Is that the movie? That's the movie. I don't know. Is this one upsmanship? Were you trying to speed run that shit? Because that felt no, like a speed I run. I just think that. Should we put a clock effect under that? That was impressive. No, I'm not going to do that because I don't want to. But but the story is that simple. It's a very simple story. It is that simple. It's like a tone poem, so its plot is very much not what the movie's for. It's definitely what it's about, but it's not what it's for, I guess is my argument. Yeah. See, I would have described it as uh, Will Wheaton's dick gets sucked on by a leech. That's your movie. I thought it was balls. That's your movie? (laughs) Is it his his, uh, bag, as they call it in Stephen King world? His bag, yeah. Oh, God. oh, speaking of which, yeah. yeah, that's I. It's almost like Dreamcatcher primed me to be annoyed by it because right. I find turns of phrase and antiquated language charming, but this ongoing theme of Stephen King cannot get over fifties slang has made it obnoxious right. to me. So I never thought that this movie would be a fitting one to follow Dreamcatcher, but it really is, especially when you consider that the four kids in Dreamcatcher could easily be these four kids grown up. The story structure is the same. Uh, but also, as I did in the Dreamcatcher episode, I will just rattle off, you wet end. Oh, Gordy bit the bag. Oh no, Vince screwed the pooch again. Bullshit, no. Bull true, and uh, you ain't got the sack to shoot a woodchuck. Piss up a rope. Piss up a rope. Your mother goes around the corner and licks it up. It's like, um, it's just he loves it. Stephen King he loves, loves kids in the 50s cracking wise and saying disgusting shit about each other's moms. I Fr- don't frankly, know why that's so dear to him, but it is. I don't yeah, it kind of takes me out of it every time it happens. I'm not a bit as big of a fan. I mean, it's fine. I it don't like colors the language when people say like, bite the bag. Yeah, it's just me. like weird cuz I didn't have any friends that were like unique in their language. <laughs> no. Yeah, <laughs> like exactly. I just had normal I guess normal is not even the right word, but just like I just had 
uh, generic basic friends growing up. Apparently. Oh yeah, we had slang like that's suck, man. Like not yeah. interesting slang that we invented. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like we wouldn't even say like go screw. We would just say like screw you, you know, or whatever. Although our, like we'd use the same group language. Does say kick rocks a lot. Yeah. Hey, kick rocks. Yeah. Just because. Uh, yeah, because we're in, we're most of our friends are comedians, and comedians are insufferable. So they take bits and just rehash them over and over and over as bits for the sake of bits, and so that's probably why. Because kick rocks makes it sound like we're all super archaic. Um, and that's, that's kind of why I think people say that in our friend group. Slap pavements, you screw, uh, you dag egg (laughs) to quote a video game I recently played. Uh, (laughs) all right. Should we move on right through? We, Mm -hmm. but we burst right through that dome. We, I can't wait. We flash speed forced right through that dome into Mm -hmm. our next spectrum, which is. Also named after Stephen King's story, but not a book, I which I increasingly regret the lack of clarity. But this is Skeleton Crew. Something in the mist. Shut the doors. Shut the doors. Yeah. It's a. Na- I, is- it fits well as a title, but I don't like that they hear a clip of the mist because Skeleton Crew is a short story collection. Anyway, anyway, my hangups aside, this is where we talk about um, basically anything about the making of our cast and crew that we think is going to play in later. Uh, I uh, don't have much other than noting that this is also directed by Rob Reiner, who did Misery, and we did him Mm -hmm. in reverse order. So actually... Uh, this film's set in the fictional town of Castle Rock, Oregon. Rob Reiner ended up, after this movie, forming such a close relationship with Stephen King that he went on to do Misery. Stephen King, as we said on that episode, said, I'll only sell the rights to Misery if it's Rob Reiner. And then he founded Castle Rock Entertainment, which is a production studio that, frankly, churns out Stephen King adaptations, and uh, some good, some bad. And uh, and it's a Mm -hmm. reference to... Uh, Stephen King. So Rob Reiner loves Stephen King. Rob Reiner plus Stephen yeah. King forever. And just so people know the timeline for Reiner in this, it this is the his third film. The Rhine Line uh, obviously started in '84 with this is Spinal Tap. This is '86. Here's here here are the movies that are made within four years of each other. It's you know '86, '87, '89, '90. Of the next four, starting with Stand By Me, the next three pictures that Reiner made were in order. The Princess Bride, Mm. When Harry Met Sally, Mm. Misery. Mm. Holy jeez. What what a... I can't think of like... And then Stand By Me. Yeah, what a... No, Stand By Me, Princess Bride, When Harry Met Sally, Misery. Oh, okay. He then went on to A Few Good Men, but those four... Jeez, like that's that's a that's a good four years, man. And what a fun! They all seem like very fun things to work on. Like the sad yeah. experiences were probably great. I mean, my God, yeah, I mean, on Princess Bride, you got Christopher Guest hanging out to shoot the shit mm-hmm, with mm-hmm, Jesus. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's uh like he's he he's kind of blasting on scene in a way. Stand by me definitely is. Everyone, this is Spinal Tap. It's like, ah, uh, yeah, you're hanging around with your buds, making jokes, Christopher Guest, and all that. It's that's fun. 
Um, and it's that's I love this is Spinal Tap. Uh, he had a, a movie that's a little less, less known called The Sure Thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then Stand By Me really like made him solid, I think, in terms of like the zeitgeist at the time, uh, you know, based off my obviously I was I mean, I was one year year old when this came out. So it's kind of more like um, just like reading through its effectiveness over the years and the fact that it's been remembered. Uh, but I think the themes that are at play were entirely unique to itself. And that's kind of what Rob Reiner, I think as a director, which I'll go more into what makes him effective, saw in the story and why it is kind of a standalone in Stephen King's anthology of works. Uh, and it will remind us later when we do Shawshank of just like when he does it a little bit more humble, less like premise based, uh, what he's good at and what he's not good at, and uh, what's surprising about this film. Shawshank, um, but yeah. by the way, we should note, since we're in Skeleton Crew, f- uh, a short story from the same collection, which was uh, called Four yeah. Seasons or something about the seasons, because there were four mm-hmm. stories, one for each season. Uh, I believe Shawshank was the spring one. Apt Pupil is the winter one. I mm-hmm. think this is the fall one because it's childhood's exit from your life but imagine Mm. writing a four stories in a short story collection and three out of four are made into films and for all i know the fourth one is because i can't remember what it is but man he just gets he could yeah he's really the shane black of novelists he could just scrawl anything on Mm -hmm. a napkin and we'll make it into a movie we love it (laughs) um yeah just because we talk about usually in this section we talk about what stephen king thought of the movie Mm. uh stephen king apparently was floored by this movie. Not only is it well known because uh, he's talked about it multiple times, but in the initial screening that he viewed, he had to take like 15 minutes to compose himself. Now, I don't know where he was in his life if that may have meant like do some cocaine know, in the do bathroom. Do some cocaine or something. Get his shit together. But he came back and he was like teary eyed and he quote said, This is the best film made out of anything I've written, which isn't saying much because at this time, it, you know, it was a little early. Uh, but he says, quote, you really captured my story. It's autobiographical. So like, there's something to be said about that. And then later in Blu-rays interviews on like the 25th anniversary and such like that, he did, he still indicates that this is one of his favorite films that has been translated to film from his works. So it might be one of the top ones for him now, considering the entire range of all, all the things in the, that you'll hear in the show and his, you know, the totality of his, uh, you know, text to cinema kind of Oeuvre. works. This is apparently, um, this is apparently one of the best for him, which I'm sure that's got to feel good for Rob Reiner, you know, especially cause he was pretty young as a director at this point. Um, Oh yeah, yeah. There's there's one little thing that I thought uh, this has nothing to do with anything, but I just I saw this in like one of doing a little bit of research, and I thought it was really hilarious, and it I, it has nowhere to be uh, other than this section. Mm-hmm. Uh, apparently, so Keith Sutherland, uh, who's in this film, he plays the quintessential Ace. Stephen King bully, like absurdly yeah, exactly. psychotic teen bully, uh, to be right. re- uh, used as a trope by Stephen King time and time again for the rest of his career. Yeah, it's uh, he argue, or he he gave in an interview a, a little example of what like 
all the kids were having great fun with each other and were like up to pranks and, you know, make them ups because they're kids and all. Mm. And uh, there was a Ren fair that was being held and the cast and crew attended be- at one of the locations and they bought some cookies uh, and the cookies turned out to be pot brown, like cookies. <gasps> and uh, they found the crew found Jerry O'Connell crying and high as fuck oh somewhere my God. in a park. In a Ren fair. Which just... That's not funny. With like an orc Pers- trying to comfort him. <laughs> You're going to be fine, kid. Yeah. Ah! It's, it's not too, because like, remember, he's a kid. No, and they yeah. And not know what drugs is. Could have shut down know? the shoot. That's a major legal issue as well. Like it's, yeah. yeah, it's a whole deal. And it's it's funny to me, though, for some reason, because it's Jerry O'Connell. <laughs> and of course, of all the, all the kids to happen... Uh, two who who are in this film, of course, of course, it's Jerry O'Connell. I was gonna guess Feldman, man. I mean, when I think drugs, I think of Corey Feldman. These are kids, but like, I just think it's funny because Vern is the guy that they all pick on. So it's just like, man, he can't catch a break. And it's also funny because he's, I mean, it's because. He even self-referentially in the film Mm. talks about he's like, yeah, getting up on the fat kid. It's funny that. The fat kid's big problem was that he ate cookies, well, I, and that's just sad. I talked it's about sad, this when we covered the Burbs, know. another Feldman vehicle. Uh, mm-hmm. There was this thing in this era where, A, it's okay to make fun of fat people, and actually this movie's a little ahead of its time as far as, you know, sticking up for Vern and the friends are like, yeah, it's bullshit that oh, yeah. everyone hates you because f- of your body. Uh, but at the same time, I just think it's funny that casting-wise... To cast a character who everyone in the universe perceives them as fat, you'd have to cast a much fatter kid. It's amazing right. that that's considered fat Jerry O'Connell. He ain't that fat. I'm fatter than that's, that now. That's one of the things, because as like a lifelong fat kid, man, like I think this film does it right. Because like, feel obviously everyone's going to have their own opinion, but my opinion of it is that like it's just like... It's fun for jabs and stuff because there's there's no anger behind the words. There's no like ridicule. It is ridicule the friends, you know, poking and jabbing at each other. There is ridicule in that, but it's like a heartfelt one. The one that I remember experiencing, one that I remember like dishing out myself, you know, to other friends. Um, but like it's it's just one of those things that it's a part of being a boy. Um, and having friends that are also little boys and, uh, it encapsulates that nostalgic or that, like that age. Uh, and that's, it plays to the movie. So it's one of the times that I'll be like, yeah, it's not great in terms of like, um, I know it will be considered, I think through time fairly problematic, but I would go to bat for the fact that it's like, well, that was my experience though. Like I had no ill will towards that. I just think other people who meant it. I just think there's been a literal and figurative inflation. Like the fat guy in the burbs that everyone calls fat. I would call. It's just not that fat. Pretty. He's pretty doing all right, actually. He's husky, (laughs) you know, know. but not entirely obese. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Yeah. Well, Uh, it takes place in 59 and it has all the, I guess we should move on because this isn't skeleton crew, but it has all the dated stuff. They drop the R word for people with, uh, you know, different mental abilities. And they're also 12 years old, so they're not going to not be insensitive. 
Uh, they talk about f- yeah, fucking and all the each other other's moms use and all that absolute, stuff. Yeah, absolute pieces of shit. Not only the gang, uh, Sutherland's gang, but also that um, uh, the the guy who's at who owns the junkyard, I guess, mm-hmm. is just the, the worst piece of shit. Who's just. <laughs> Basically, picking a fight with kids. Imagine you saw some kids and they were admittedly trespassing on your property, but then you're like, I know twisted shit about you. Your dad's a piece of shit. You're like, just leave the kids alone. Let them go on their way. It's just like, whoa. Yeah, so it, uh, at least there's no like, ah, that, I mean, I guess the kids, it does satisfy that. But kids in film, it's different because Mm -hmm. like, I mean, you've seen Larry Clark's kids, right? I don't know if that's like it is a problematic oh, the film, movie? but that's no, kind of the point. Oh, you haven't? No. Oh man, you got to watch that. That's, I feel weird about watching it because my understanding is that the ki- you're actually watching young actors be sexually exploited on camera. Isn't it bad to watch that? It, in a way, absolutely. Um, yeah, but but its effectiveness is an entirely different. Is it a Harmony Corinne? I like Gummo. No, oh, I thought it was Harmony but Corinne. It okay. kind of feels like that. Okay. Um, but that's for maybe another podcast. Clearly, as like a frame rate. As, I would love to talk to you about that. What you think about the verisimilitude? I still got to watch Vast tonight. Those characters. Mm. That's not the point. So clearly, not we got to move on to under a different dome. And you look up, and inscribed on the surface of that <laughs> dome are two simple letters, and they spell it. Bill. If you come with me, you'll float too. You'll float too. You'll float too. Is that too confusing? Yeah, yeah, it was a little confusing. This is where we talk about scene work, themes, symbology. It's basically the episode. Uh, It's what we want to talk about. Our takeaways. It's the X factor, baby. It's the juice. This section's going to make it. This section's going to be big. It's the sizzle. It's the sizzle. It's the sizzle and the steak all wrapped up into one. Uh, yeah, you, it sounded like you had a thing to start us off or I got I can, tons of stuff. Yeah, I first want to say that I couldn't stop ta- thinking about, <clears throat> uh, William Blake's age of innocence and age of experience, the whole movie. Like it's basically Stephen King doing an adaptation of those poems. It's, re- it's really crazy. And I think that's about, that's its effectiveness. It's about that those key years where, you know, you realize what being an adult, you, you kind of scope what being a, you don't learn what being an adult is, but you start to understand the ramifications of becoming an adult and you start to understand what kinds of things are adult like. And I think that this is kind of a, a snapshot or a portrait of that time and it's really unique. Yeah. Like, I can't think of another film that does this. I don't know if it's clear by this point, but like like I said, I hadn't seen this film before uh, studying it for this podcast. Uh, I really like this movie. Uh, I also noticed for the first time, and I've seen this movie at least a dozen times, but I never thought about it symbologically, but it, it's built around the perfect, very simple s- symbol, but perfect. The childhood is a train track 
and it's a straight shot to a dead body. Realizing right. adulthood is realizing your mortality. Childhood is walking down the train tracks, yeah. and at the end of the tracks is a dead body, and it's your dead body. Uh, so they just literalize the death of childhood as the first time I saw a dead body, we walked in a straight line to a dead body. Childhood ended. You can't get much simpler than that as far as like yep. the elegance of a symbol. Um, That's and it's, one it, of the it, it, It's yeah. allowed to be simple because there's not much more to say about it because we have not cracked that nut. It's like, yes, childhood is a special time of innocence unless you're unfortunate enough to have had your childhood trampled over. But for many of us, there was at least right. a period of childhood that was this beautiful, naive, innocent period. And it goes right. away and there's no way to get it back. That's that. Um, and it, it's inherently heartbreaking because it's actually true. Everyone deals with it and it does suck. Life remains rich mm -hmm. and full in other ways, but childhood is special and you can never get it back. Uh, right. It's a train track to a dead body. <laughs> it's so cool. That's uh, yeah. And the tracks kind of represent that predefined direction in life that society like, I'm trying to look at all of the aspects of the film that aren't the boys actually going through, going on their journey. And you realize that the expectations, like the conversation with Gordy, uh, who's Will Wheaton, uh, Gordy, our main character, at the convenience store when he's buying um, some burgers. By the way, uh, 237 is the number of... Uh, that's what they the spend amount of on money food. they have between yeah. all of them, which, you know, for your king heads, 237 is an important number. Wait, is that uh, the room from The Shining? The yeah. Okay. So it comes up a lot in king, king verse. Um, but yeah, it def it's kind of like in that scene with the convenience store, the convenience store. So, uh, you know, only a few scenes that are played by uh, John Cusack, the older brother of Will Wheaton. Uh, there's the idea that he like plays football, right? Mm -hmm. And he's like, he, man, he could really throw. And it's like, everyone loves him. His dad loves him. We're going to, we're going to talk about that later. But the idea being that if it's not just that the tracks and the train or the tracks represent time, but also that they define pre defined direction and assumptions that society makes at one point, the convenience store, uh, owner asks, do you play football? And he says, no. And then it's like, and he says, what do you do? And he says, I don't know. The subtext is then what good are you to the community? What function do you because serve? Because he's off yeah. the tracks. You're not an There's adult. another scene later after, uh, they get across the bridge where it says, uh, where Vern says, I say we stick to the tracks. And then, he, uh, I think Feldman says, I say we go through the field. And he's like, you don't know what's in those woods. And it's just like a perfect, almost Spielbergian version of innocence. It's just this idea of like going on the offbeaten path. And if you notice in the DNA of the actual movie, and I don't know who to credit this, Ryan or King, most of their times where they discuss their rough home lives and their ambitions, in other words, the things that make any of these kids unique, it's not discussed on the tracks. It's discussed right off the tracks. 
It's discussed when they are in camp or they're trying a different route. And of course, it's not necessarily on the tracks yeah. because it's what makes them unique. It's not what society has declared at this time as a 12 year old boy. This is what you should be. And of course, they're Teddy's all- the one who wants to go off the tracks. He's all the time. He ends up uh, trying to join the army to like become his father, who he also hates because his father's abusive. He has this bizarre, like we, like not bizarre. It, it's very psychologically sound, but he has a complicated uh, love hate relationship with his father figure. Mm-hmm. So he goes off tracks, and we see from the epilogue that in life he goes off tracks. I think he ends up in jail. They say, uh, and that's what is jail, but where we put people who are not on an acceptable track in society. Exactly. Exactly. What, what we have ordained is quote unquote normal. Um, and the train therefore becomes another metaphorical symbol. Cause obviously it, it, it's a threat. I love the simple symbology of a section of tracks or a section of your life where you have no, like you either go forward or as Feldman says, I'm not going to go down that. You have to go. If you go five miles the other way to the other bridge, you're going to have to go five miles back. I'm not going to go 10 miles just for something I can do in 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. And so they all agree. Okay, let's go during this very treacherous area of track where if the train were to come, they're dead. And of course, that it's kind of one of the more famous scenes of it. I think um, where they real the train does come and they have to like run in order to save their lives, culminating in uh, you know Will Whedon and Jerry O'Connell bar- diving barely off dodging the, the trestle. Train. Yeah. Yeah. So obviously that represents the threats we all face by just leaving and life the fact that you on those tracks. Can't stop on the tracks. You can't. You can't. You stop. can't not age. There's, it goes forward. There's some. Yeah. And it's not just that. There's some sections of the track that are immutable. And They're, I think that's know, why it's also key that Stephen King never shies away from. He sees. You can tell that Stephen King's. So here's another thing I'll say. The movie ends with a Doogie Hauser style journal with him saying, uh, I never had friends my whole life ever again that were like the friends I had when I was 12. Jesus, does anyone? And I am not bragging. I don't even know if it's good or bad, but I can honestly say I had like largely mediocre friends other than my one friend Griffin, who I've maintained when I was 12 or 13, just because I don't know, less cool people were around me. I like my friends now way better than the friends I had when I was 12 or 13. Genuinely, we have more fun and laugh more and blah, blah, blah. Uh, And so I, I just, I don't think it's necessarily universal. The feeling that childhood was a special time I get, but I think Stephen King particularly had some kind of very special childhood, but it wasn't without trauma because you see in it and Dreamcatcher and this, like he loves to talk about, man, childhood was just magical and nothing could go wrong. It was grand, he says in this film. Um, but he always gives the kids child molesters around them or racist shitheads around them or bullies who will literally like put a knife in your cheek. Um, I think it's important that he, I think it's important to him that he's capturing some kind of love hate relationship he actually had with his own childhood. I do feel that it's somewhat personal. Uh, It's very, he's said it's autobiographical. 
I, th- I, I love that statement. Um, there's something I want to say about it because I think that it's also unique to Rob Reiner's power. Uh, and coming from a directorial space, I, I feel like, I feel like I can speak to it having worked in that profession for years and also knowing the difference of what it means to talk to a child actor versus like, you know, a fully formed But why I worked in that profession, you mean giving kids weed cookies, right? That was your job for a while. Yeah. That's my job for, I mean, it's still my job. I mean, (laughs) hit me up kids. Uh, so in the campfire scene where Chris has his breakdown, Chris River Phoenix, Mm -hmm. Um, Rob Reiner, so there, he's Rob Reiner's known as kind of an actor's director because he was an actor. Like most of his career, in fact, uh, up to this point, was as an actor. Meathead himself. Um, yeah, exactly. So him directing River Phoenix, and uh, I think I don't think we need to go into much about the story around River Phoenix, but just to know that he, as a child, was abused in very, very specific ways specifically with how, how adults treated him. His family was kind of fairly toxic. Joaquin Phoenix has talked about it a lot too, uh, culminating obviously in his death. Now there in that scene, in the campfire scene, he, uh, Robert Reiner did something very specific, which I thought was very telling of how good he is as a director, especially working with kids because he asked him a very specific question in order to get him ready for the scene. He said, Think of a time in your own life when an adult had let you down and use it in the scene, which is such a good note for like a kid who's actually starting to get a grasp of what acting actually means. And Phoenix did it. They used that version in the cut. And the point, I guess, the acting moment in the whole movie easily. So good. So good. Here's the thing. After River Phoenix, River Phoenix reportedly could not turn that off then because he because of what was going on in his life and the fact that most of the abuse was very much so adults who let adult him down, letting him down. He was very upset and he had to be comforted by the director. Rob Reiner apparently like took the time, shut the thing down for a while in order to make sure that his friend this child was okay and that's i think when we talk about actors directors just as me on my little soapbox as director thing because a lot of people have different views about how to direct a film and i think it's going to become increasingly more relevant when we talk about when we stack this up in the you know pantheon of king is that another big film up there is the shining and i just wanted to point that out before we do that later in this podcast that this is a guy who not only speaks to children like humans and asks them to be collaborative as in the way that only kids can be collaborative, he chose not to limit, not to approach that scene with how do I communicate to a human and then limit it to a kid because that's how much a lot of directors do that. A lot oh, of directors. Dude, yeah. It's like you could, how do you get someone to you're a smaller human, that right? Place so, where they're really broken down. I could right, break no. them down or, I could invite them into the process and ask them about times they felt broken and have them empathetically, consensually tap into that. And give you can get the same result. <laughs> yeah. And then when I and then when I accidentally, unknowingly, because I don't think Rob Reiner or anyone really knew what was going on, mm-hmm. that shit came out after. When he saw someone upset and crying, he 
acted accordingly. He was like, let's so, take these kids to a Ren fair. That'll solve it. And then we know it will solve it. Uh, my point is big. Yeah. Uh, in terms of like, when I look at myself and at who the director I want to be and the person that I want to be when working professionally with these kinds of situations and talking about harder stuff, I can't stand Rob Reiner more. Yeah. Like he's the, he's the type of director I want to be. You know what I mean? Absolutely. So I thought and that, that, that was moment uh just to bring it on home t- on the like uh, close reading level. I think it's so extra poignant. We talked uh, on frame rate and bone tomahawk about the about the treatment of uh true like graphic trauma and terror and how empathy is the key ingredient to making you feel that it's horrible and uh there's something especially heartbreaking that takes such a deep understanding and thoughtful craftsmanship that his line is so specific. And it's what it reminded me of The Wire because The Wire repeatedly pulls this trick where it's an elegant, subtextual, immediate shift where you understand that for all of someone's bluster, they still did hope or think the system would work. And it's a moment right. of them really knowing, even though they said they knew it, really knowing they're alone and they're fucked. And mm. it's specifically that he starts to cry and says, I just never thought a teacher. And it's like, oh, yeah, you were the kid Fuck. saying homophobic jokes in the treehouse with cigarettes rolled up in your sleeve like a goddamn tough guy. I thought you knew adults were bullshit. You say adults are bullshit all the time. Deep down, you were secretly hoping they weren't, though. You were hoping because someone's a teacher and an adult, that means they wouldn't steal from you. It No, all the shit you say offhanded, oh, adults are full of shit. It's true. Adults are full of shit. And for it to really strike home in that moment that he was like, I didn't think a teacher would r- sell me out uh, God, yeah. is heartbreaking. Oh, it's so good. It's- it's so good and oh this is perfect because there I want to I want to just I want to keep churning in this like a termite just keep eating through this this wood that we're going through mm-hmm. right now. Uh here's the thing, the next scene has another amazing symbol to me that I almost gasped when I saw it. I was like, "Fuck yes. Fuck yes." That that was what was going on mm-hmm. in my head because the scene immediately after that scene is a scene where we have Will Whedon, we have Gordy sitting on the tracks. There's the, he has the gun. It's off to the side. He's reading a comic book. And it's about 90 seconds. A deer walks up, realizes that he's there. They maintain con- eye contact for a second. And then, and Will Whedon smiles. Mm. And then the deer gets scared, spooked, and runs off. Now, this scene hit me. For some well, reason, and I, sorry, and just, I, 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 just importantly, I think then we get the narrator's VO saying, and I've, and I never, right, I kept that to boy, myself. I never yeah. told anyone that happened. I never, yeah, yeah. I, I've never spoken or written of it until just now. It's very intimate moment. And the scene really hit me because it really nails the atmosphere of the movie. And I think there's a pretty wonderful symbol in this as well. I think it's representative of the positive aspects of new experiences. Cause if we're going to talk about the tracks and we're going to talk about how like life and experience, like when we discuss, that's why I keep bringing up, uh, uh, William Blake, William Blake had a very, you know, like 
uniform version of how that works. It's like a one-way street. You are born, you're innocent. It kind of comes from like Christian tradition. You're born innocent. And then over time, the cruelty and brutishness of life turns you into an experienced uh, adult who is aware of the harshness of reality. Um, There's something beautiful about this moment because we'll, because Gordy, who is um, very much so like he, because he's the writer and he's like, you know, it's, it's, it's in the DNA of the movie. He's the creative one. He makes stories, all that. Of course, it's perfect for him, not just because he's the main character, but because of his particular uh, arc, that he would be the one to acknowledge the fact that, and he is the one who says, I don't think that this is, we're going to go see a dead body, kids, like friends. We're not, this is not, maybe this shouldn't be a party. Mm. You know, we're, we're acting like Which we're having fun. We're going to go see a dead They just thought kid. it would be something to do. That really is it. They just thought it would be something to do. And then that's, you know, like, and how adult is it to be like, actually, maybe we should be treating this solemnly like adults would. Yeah. (laughs) Right. And the absolute, the absolute, to me, filmic intelligence of doing a moment like that right after that huge blow not only allows us uh, from like a tactile viewing of it as a moment to kind of breathe, but also reminds us that yes, these kids are doing something that is kind of terrible in that they are experiencing life and like they're getting, you know, leeches, trains, guns, you know, bullies, all these things are coming at them and they're going to age up. And it's about the mileage, not necessarily years. Like they, in a matter of four days, they age like four mm-hmm. years kind of idea. Um, to show that vulnerability in that moment to say, also, look at that little, look at that beautiful deer. This is kind of an amazing trip. Is like such a ah, fucking nail right, right through, right it's through. It's true. And the heart. trips I remember. Uh, all uh, most fondly also had some of the most epic fuck fuck up moments or like difficult grueling like issues happened or whatever. Um, those right. times stick in your mind. Things that cause great pain and great joy blend in a way <laughs> as they and uh, as they shrink in the so. rearview mirror. They just become important moments. And yeah, and I think to just take home the symbol of the deer. Traditionally, in literature, I found that the deer is representative of vulnerability or like mm-hmm. helplessness, right? Because it's, it's not it's a it's prey, it's a it's a prey yeah. animal. We eat it, so it, 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 they're it always shaky. To like humans. Yeah. <laughs> they're shaky. They're yeah, and to follow that up from a scene where Chris is the most vulnerable. Mm-hmm is you know and he's witnessing an intimate me, moment of vulnerability from another living creature i get it that is a great symbol that, i think yeah. what it's i think what they're saying is i think gordy's kind of smiling at his friend saying you're vulnerable and you feel alone but you're not i'm here for you because i'm your friend yeah and i think that that and that's why stand by me Mm-hmm. That's what, that's the point of it, right? Like, that's why it's And yet that's how he me. nails the bittersweet tone that I think so many coming of age movies fail is they never shy away from making the growing up part actually suck. Like for all the 
affirmations that, well, deep down, I'll always be there for you. The prologue, the epilogue is like, and then we quickly drifted apart and I stopped talking to them. I don't know exactly why there was no big falling out. That just happens. And you're like, that does just happen. That sucks. (laughs) Very realistic. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I love that scene a lot and it's, it's over and gone in a very quick Mm -hmm. amount of time. Uh, what do you think about the editing in this movie? Uh, I didn't make any particular notes about it, so I guess you should start. That sounds like you have something. Well, I just wanted to. I just wanted to ask you because, like, if you look at the editing in like the treehouse, like at the top of the mm-hmm. movie, where it's, it's like, usually uh, when you and I were editing, you know, side by side, doing our muskets mm-hmm. thing and doing some crack stuff, we'd use this. Um, we'd use the term ping pong. Mm-hmm. Right, bounce yeah. back, bounce back. It's all about the reaction shots. If you look at the treehouse editing, hundred percent, that's our editorial pace. Like you, right. Miz, yeah. and Michael. It's it's a in my opinion because it edits like the way I see editing. This editing pace is blazingly flat, fast, and uh, I think that the only time that it actually there's one misstep in my opinion in this movie. Uh, in terms of that edit mm-hmm. editorial base. Uh, and it is when the body, the body scene. Uh, I don't think they ever should have shown a close-up of Brower, the dead body, yeah. I disagree. I disagree. Well, wow, they did. So how are you saying it's a misstep yeah. then? You think it should have been a longer I close-up? I think it's a misstep because... Yeah, they and they they missed a wide. Oh, see, I think they uh, so should have. Well, you have a deeper analysis, so I'll just say my two cents, and then you can go. But yeah, uh, please. I think it would have worked really well as the Pulp Fiction soul in the briefcase, or the uh, uh, you know lost in translation. What does she say? Like, I just could have seen Brower's legs and seen their reactions to it, and it be something that you understand is horrible to look upon. That would have worked for me. That that makes sense based off what you're saying, but I think the body's more than that um, because I think that if it's to, if if it's the if it's just the realization that life ends and and we want to dwell or focus or meditate on the futility of some things, then absolutely I think you're right. It's it, then the body becomes something to be almost dismissed editorially. But that's not what this body is, because we got to put it through the lens of the main character. I think Gordy and the reason that Gordy, it's important for Gordy to be one who stands up for the body uh, in the end, because he's the kid who takes out the gun and says, you get the fuck out of here, Keith or Sutherland. Uh, Gordy at home. This is my you bite the bag. You went yeah. Gordy is treated as an empty shell by his parents due to the death of his brother. The whole film, his father and mother are introduced by not caring to acknowledge him or foster his growth and development because of their grief. And yeah, that's for sure. But they, even his friends tell him they need to get their shit together because you're still developing even in his dream, which obviously I think we're supposed to take as not a non-reality, but it's definitely what he's thinking. His father literally says at the, at the funeral of his brother, should have been you, Gordon, or should have been, yeah, should have been you, Gordon. That's a, 
version of how they actually treat him in reality. And his story in this movie is about him realizing that and that he hates his dad. He fucking hates his dad because he is a kid forgotten. Right. Ray Brower, the dead body, also represent also represents the diversions of innocence and experience because the boys themselves are forgetting their boyness. So it's been replaced by the series. It's like it's just off the tracks. It's representative of death. It's caused by the and train. And it's you. I mean, I I obviously got that it is you, you because you could right. easily have been the very same accident that killed him almost killed you on your way here. It's the mm-hmm. same thing. And there's there's been a few times that we've talked about, I believe, in this podcast, but I've definitely talked about it on other podcasts. Uh, there's a moment in cinema that gets redone all the time that is, it's just one of those things that is just true. And like everyone, like a lot of filmmakers have done it because it just works. And it, and it, and I think that this film should have dipped into it and maybe they avoided it in particular, but I think it based off the year it was made, I think that it's just a misstep editorially. If you watch something like Lawrence of Arabia or you watch Jaws, they have this moment where when you're looking upon death in the after fact, in like the blast radius of death, not like a still image of the event as opposed to witnessing the violence of the event. Uh, there's something that happens about the meditation on that, which is that things kind of move on. But we are kind of held hostage by that moment. I'm thinking of in Lawrence of Arabia uh, when he he flies off his motorcycle, like kind of the last shot of the film, the glass is just wisping in the wind. Or the buoy in Jaws to represent that the swimmer has been taken beneath the surface by the shark. And it's just a meditative shot for just a little while of it just ebbing to and fro kind of thing. They actually, he actually did this in the movie, whether or not he knew he did, because I don't think he has control of the wind, but the wind in the body scene is, I fucking love it. I think death and cinema should always be followed by like wind or waves because time, time moves on. It's a near silent, invisible motion that is very represent that you can see its effects visually, but it's not like. It's not like a fire hydrant of water shooting mm. things out or an explosion. It's not like motion right. in the way that time, is visually time flows visceral. invisibly. That's what's insidious about it. You look up and you're 10 right. years older and you go, ah, snap. Yeah. <laughs> so I argue it should be a lonesome and meditative moment. And if you want to break down the moment, we get two shots of his face only. And we do get a wide, but he's he's obscured. And I don't know why there's not a wide of the kids looking at the body from like, like a distance. A pause, like a meditative pause. I'd buy that too. Yeah, for sure. Right. Yeah, yeah. Because that's also the bread and butter of how he's using lenses. He uses mm-hmm. a lot of long lenses on this film. Uh, and he doesn't hold on it. It specifically avoids holding on it. If you rewatch it, tell me you don't want to see like his face for longer. Even when if you're we're going to see cut, his face at all, it should have been longer. I, I had it that It does thought. cut away That's, fast. I think Do you remember my brain that? just went the other way where I'm like, well, if you're only going to show it that long, don't show it at all. Go, yeah, yeah, totally. From the, the moment we see the long shot of his body, in other words, you know, Jerry O'Connell looking at the body and going, I found it. Uh, I literally took a stopwatch. 61 mm-hmm. seconds. 
to they walk away from the mm. body. And in that moment, we see a long shot of the body. The kids walk up. They move to the bushes to reveal his face. They all look at his face. Each kid gets a single close-up. Dreyfus narrates four sentences, and then they walk away. It takes 61 seconds. Time is very flux in cinema, mm. right? 61 seconds can be an eternity, but based off how much, how many things that they're doing in the whole movie, the whole movie is leading up to this moment. This is the plot resolving. You just felt like they rested. <laughs> it's, yeah. It's one minute of climax mm -hmm. plot wise, but that, you know, like, I don't know. I'm off my soapbox, but the point is, I just think they're like, they had a beautiful moment there, and I uh, I want to know why he chose to avoid it. I don't have the answer for you. I don't. Yeah, it's just me and my thoughts, man. Sick balls. <laughs> uh, okay. Yeah, I don't have the answer, but that was a worthy diversion. Uh, can I flip us back to something unrelated? Because I don't have anything that segues neatly yes, from please. that. Uh, my other big takeaway, uh, which I touched on briefly in a in the previous spectra w uh, spectrum, which was like uh, how seminal this movie obviously was for so many tropes. There was a massive through line that I just couldn't get out of my head that I find so interesting, which is that this is the last movie I would have expected to peg as clearly inspiring Tarantino. This is such a Tarantino-y movie. Uh, and I think that's a missing link in... So, like, Tarantino is a compilation artist, right? And he com he has very good taste, sure. and he's an archiver of film tropes, and he swims in tropes, and he breathes tropes, and uh, he sort of uh, pastiches them together into a fun romp. And he mm -hmm. occasionally has a point, but sometimes he doesn't even have a point. He's just making a Western because he felt like it. Uh, in <laughs> yeah, so... <laughs> <laughs> and he and he whips all his tropes out and he rearranges them and he makes a cool little thing. And that's and that's fine. You can yeah. like it or not. I don't care about that. But my point is, I just uh, he's a formidable force in storytelling right now. And I do think it's amazing mm -hmm. how much this movie uh, must have inspired him, because this has the intensely curated soundtrack that reminded me so much of Reservoir Dogs, of just the experience, like analogic, what, analogically? I don't know how you'd say that, but you know what I mean. Uh, uh, yeah. The Reservoir Dogs soundtrack is to Reservoir Dogs as this soundtrack is to this. And as, <clears throat> as like this, the yeah. Garden State soundtrack is to Garden State, it just wouldn't be that movie without that soundtrack. And the person behind the right. soundtrack obviously thinks they have very good taste in music. And they kind of do. Um, they kind of do. And, yeah. uh, and it captures an era. And then the other thing is I just couldn't get over how Tarantino and to a lesser extent Kevin Smith always get credit for introducing this casual conversational tone that is kind of uh, presaged what is now the bulk of the way people imbibe media through podcasts, through YouTube streamers, through Twitch streamers, this, uh, this form of, uh, I'm going to call it cinema verite, even though it's not really cinema, or I guess Inclusion. dialogue verite. You know, Clerks invented the mm -hmm. movie where... Yeah. Hey, the people really talk like real people. No, I mean really. Like they say shit that doesn't matter and is boring. <laughs> like people do. Um, yeah. This yeah. had so much more of that than I remembered. The whole montage where they're talking about what is goofy, cherry flavor, Pez what is, is goofy, the best. Yeah. Uh, and it wasn't just that one. Let me f scroll through real quick and look for the... Uh, title that says uh tarantino tarantino oh yeah to talk about whether mighty mouse could beat superman 
Um, uh-huh. No lingering shots of feet. But other than that, I just got uh, <laughs> much... Because there's no way That's women, true. Much real. stronger Tarantino vibes than I thought. And I don't know if that's interesting, people, but it is to me. And my argument for why it matters is, uh, regardless of quality, and I don't even think Tarantino's terrible. I, I actually like a fair number of his films. But regardless of your take on what's fresh or what's quality, it's it, the whole thing is is a flow. And it's that's the only way to get an overview of the system of how are we using stories to program our own brains and what are we programming ourselves to be like in the future is to take note of the storytellers that are hogging the brain space and remember mm. that they are a unique, weird, complex individual mind who perceives reality in a very specific way. What shaped the way they perceive reality? Where are they in the flow? And I would be shocked if this movie wasn't beloved by Quentin Tarantino. That's what I'm calling now. That's that's interesting. But like, why do you think... What about Tarantino makes you think that? Is it just because... The, I mean, I know you said the clerks thing and like the like the language and like the bag of tricks it's employing. Is that what you mean? Is that like it seems to be? I think Tarantino in is the same all, kind of dialect. I think Tarantino is ninety nine percent his bag of tricks, more than he is a but, passionate yearning to make statements. He is a bag a walking bag of tricks, and I <clears throat> therefore have had fun over my life pinpointing because he's like a decade and a half older than us. Oh, this is where you learned that trick. Oh, this is where you absorbed that fighting move right, and put right, it in your right. bag. Uh, yeah. I think it's not the type of movie that. T- no, not at all. Likes, That's why though. I find it an interesting one to call out. It's same as when, right, right. Uh, and you can only do it with these directors who are so loud. Like Wes Anderson, I will see an old movie mm-hmm. and go, "That's where Wes Anderson decided he loved that That's shot." Where you got yeah. It, yeah. Yeah, that's that's interesting. Um, I definitely I can we can't say until we have Quentin on uh, <laughs> whether yeah, or not be. he does stand this but movie. But it, yeah. it's I I under I kind of I kind of get what you're saying, but I also just think that Tarantino uniquely uh, like just as an aspect of himself is infatuated with ter- certain types of stories. It's not genre, not but it. you have to imagine he likes Stephen King shit generally, because that is genre. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe. We can't solve this yeah, now. But the other know. thing I'll say is this... But that's a interesting This is theory, really yeah. just worshipping at the altar of the, uh, the sheer condensed trope power of this movie because it's not just Tarantino Mm -hmm. that I couldn't stop getting flashes of these stories that are downstream Mm -hmm. from this movie clearly include goodwill hunting. You've got a writer whose shitty friend is telling him, no, 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 you're going to get out of here. You're the special one because you have an imagination. And what is so beautiful about it is in that scene, we keep coming back to because it's the best scene, frankly, between uh, river Phoenix and uh, will Wheaton. It's, uh, you get the sense that his his desperation and belief that his friend will make it out and will be a famous storyteller is twofold. One, it's that he's genuinely his friend, so he wants good things for him. He wants his he wants right. him to value. I know you like writing, so no, don't let your dad tell you that's not worthwhile. You should do it if you like it. Your yeah, dreams should come true. Man. Do what but you want. also yeah. but your life will not be like my life. You can tell my story on my behalf. I'm gonna yeah, I'm it's that- f- Goodwill hunting I'm 13 moment. and I can yeah. already tell I'm doomed. I'm going to get stabbed in the throat ultimately. But like, I already feel like 
no one tells my story and you're going to make it out and I know you just please absorb my trauma so that it can be enshrined. And uh, I find that's such a fascinating mm. arc that's played out in other coming of age stories very frequently. Um, I'm, I was also very much reminded of the Donnie Darko Smurf scene. Mainly when the bullies are right. hanging out, yeah. uh, playing mailbox baseball and talking about dead bodies and shit. I was like, this is so Donnie Darko. And then I realize, no, this is so coming of age movie. Yeah. Damn, this is like the coming of age movie. It nailed it all this It kind of is. Yeah, it's the yeah. best compilation of it. Uh, in that, On that note, though, I do want to ask you something because when we're talking about like the agency of like not broken, but damaged characters in this movie. Uh, I wanted to bring up Ace, uh, you know, Kiefer Sutherland and Teddy, uh, Corey Feldman. They both have a scene where they dodge a train or in one case, a truck. What about each of them makes them want to do this? Uh, is the experience of near death because they need to feel noticed or is it because they need to feel alive? What's your take on that? Because I noticed that parallel and I was like, what's that all about? And I think I have an idea, but I want to hear your thoughts. I thought it was a nod to, I don't know if Stephen King at this time he was writing this, had this background in psychology or he was reflecting on his real childhood. So it all tracked. Mm -hmm. But my understanding from like a modern psychological standpoint would be that uh, systemic trauma uh, one of the main things it does is stunt your impulse control. Mm -hmm. So a good shorthand for a character. So like the type of kid who tries right. to dodge the train, you don't have to spend a lot of screen time to know something's not right at home with that kid. That kid's probably absorbing some pain mm -hmm. or why would mm -hmm. they play the train dodging game? And an easy way to, you're not going to spend a lot of time on the bully because it's not his story. How do you show that he's a crazy motherfucker who also lacks impulse control? Well, you have him do it just once and you just assume, I guess that means the same stuff it meant when we saw Teddy do it. Okay, moving on. See, yeah. It was like an efficiency thing for me, I think. I guess, like... Something it makes less, it's less justified the scene where Ace plays chicken with the truck. Right. I don't know that we strictly need that to happen in the story, it doesn't matter. We add don't, much. but it's there, and that's the quest. That's mm -hmm. why I asked the question because I think I think you're right. Because there's something about like looks right, feels right, uh, with the characters and stuff like that. But I think that that's a surface like value. Yeah, that's a surface read of I'm just like, how did the story work? Yeah, I like want to know why it was kept in. The only thing I can like. To me, there's two impulses that makes that happen, which is one to be considered a better, more dangerous person to be noticed as that, to be seen as that. That's one possible motivation. Or another possible motivation is that in that near death experience, a lot of people talk about the gratification that people get from the feeling of being alive in those moments and after being kind of grateful about the being alive part, kind of like I think of flatliners or something like that. Right. And I think that's supported and echoed by the fact that the last shot of the movie is Richard Dreyfus literally just playing like with his kids processing yeah. my friend got stabbed in the throat how horrible but in a weird way it makes me very grateful to go play with my kids right now because right. i'm alive right, right now yeah and that's kind of if you remember when he's at his computer he kind of looks off 
mm-hmm. I, I, he probably didn't mean it, but man, it's so close that I'm sure that he did. And it pisses me off that screen <laughs> direction is not like the, how, if you were the filmmaker, wouldn't you want, cause that's the smile from Will Whedon and the smile from Richard Dreyfus, both playing those same characters through time. Uh, have a moment where they look off and they see kind of the beauty of life just happening and they smile as if to say Mm -hmm. like that's kind of beautiful to see and uh, why isn't screen direction between those two sequences mimicked I don't know but that may just be the structuralist in me like everything in its right place Uh, his kids are the deer yeah because like yeah symbolically kind of are right at least they're they're not literally representative of like a deer I assumed his kids were represented by the leeches on your nutsack you know what I mean (laughs) fuck kids dude never anchors they don't mean the same thing in the same moments like it's not a one-to-one-to-one kind of like symbolic parallel what it is though is it's at different times looking at something and smiling it means different things to these people but we can infer the meaning both times and in both cases it's kind of admiration of the beauty of things that experience of life does bring into your purview and i just was like well that's a parallel moment I don't know. Just another thing Mm -hmm. that I was like, kept this movie from being perfect. But uh, it's also intensely, intensely good way to end your picture is just like, and then it goes on, you know, and that Mm -hmm. happened and it moves on. It's, it's exactly the shot of the dead bodies that we're talking about too. It's just like, oh, here we are in the blast radius of this, this violent, cruel thing. And here we are witnesses to the, you know, just the remnants of its existence. And it represents an accident, which is the same way Denny died, which is very intentional. It's not horror. It's not a murder. No one maliciously did it. And in a way, that's what's scary. Even if there's no bully, you could just die because of life. Mm. Shit just happens. Mm. That's scary, too. (laughs) Yeah. And that was a very key moment to realize as I grew up, there's no ages protecting me there's no reason i won't die young of an accident there's there's no one stopping that you know that's something you realize at a point where you're like oh my parents can't protect me ultimately i could still die in an accident oh you know when you're seven or eight and you realize that it is a thing you go oh i'm gonna die or i did yeah well that's a whole separate moment where you go no matter what i do i will eventually Mm. die that's a different moment it was for me anyway yeah uh speaking of that a little bit the one last thing i wanted to say about symbology is kind of twofold both representing the gun and leeches which don't serve the same purpose but do serve the same kind of functional aspect in the larger themes at play and obviously the gun kind of represents masculinity and power it also represents death the idea of a loaded gun that is unexpectedly fired by a boy is a pretty perfect image because they're Mm -hmm. unexpecting of the violence that can that they're that they are capable of themselves through this device the shock of becoming an adult and in this case men is kind of that that's how we start oh, i have more power and they in have the same power. instant yeah. i have more responsibility exactly oh, exactly yeah. and um and that's why when he then use uh gordy uses the gun 
to thwart, you know, essentially just like, I love, how good are the lines, by the way, in that, in that altercation between him and Kiefer Sutherland, where he's like, not that great. And I only say that because of the line, you would, you don't have the sack to shoot a woodchuck. I'm sorry. No sucks. one would ever say that. Even in 1959, that, no one said I that. I love the, what are you going to do? Shoot us all? No, it's yeah, that's, just you. <laughs> that's great. Yeah. Actually, all the dialogue's great except that one that line, one which line, really yeah. bothered me. And I, it's just, I was like, poor Kiefer Sutherland having to say that naturally and like carry it through. Right, yeah, yeah. Poor, poor Kiefer you Sutherland. You don't have the sack to shoot a woodchuck. Yeah, what does that mean, <laughs> Stephen? Uh, but yeah, like... Uh, why a woodchuck? Why a woodchuck? Yeah. But, <laughs> but yeah, that that moment of where he like essentially just says, no, I'm going to stand up for this kid that no one's standing up for because he's fucking mm. dead. And by association, the deer, my friend Chris, all of us, you know, the idea of being off the beaten trail and, and finding uniqueness in myself, all that stuff... It comes to a point where it's just like, well, here's the real now threat. Here's the test. It is interesting that the gun, which is representing masculinity and power, is the you know device in which we seethe that power struggle. That we say, yeah. with the inclusion of the gun, a thing that represent, represents fear in one instance, and now represents control in this n- next one. And that is, I don't think that this movie dwells too much into that interplay but interesting interplay nonetheless i also want to talk about how the leeches also represent this because it kind of representative of a different type of violence that ages the boy like uh gory it's it's the it's the moment that gordy also first leads literally walks in front of river phoenix for Mm. the first time you know and stuff like that he yells stop after it um, he is now gathering power. I think there's a very specific reason why <laughs> the leeches literally bite him in the balls because uh, there's something about like in this you know coming of age film uh, and where it's just a film about boys becoming men a little bit. It's also representative of sexuality. Not that that's n- inherently violent. It's just that the understanding of the risk and seriousness of sexuality is a part of the aspect of becoming an adolescent. It's just like, and Hey, how it plays weird out stuff is going to happen to your balls. That's also part of it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it has to deal a little bit with like, I mean, I don't know. It, it, it has nothing to do with like the sexual, the sexual act. It has to deal with the aspect of you are literally changing your body's changing. Mm-hmm. So we're going to put some focus on, I don't think the leeches is just a bit where it's like, it's funny. It bit them in the balls. It's a funny joke. Like, I think it has intention is all I'm, I'm saying. Sure. Much like the gun, uh, it, you know, it kind of represents this aging up aspect of them. It's yeah. just a different form of it. Um, that's all I had for that. Um, I just go other- one more thing. Uh, which was how much I loved, and I don't believe, I actually believe it's somewhat superfluous. Not that Gordy tells a story, the story of Lardass's revenge. Uh, that's very important because it, it's showing, not telling it, which it's funny. In this case, uh, his act that he does to show is to tell, 
but it's still showing not right. telling in the screenwriting sense because he literally tells a story to prove see it. that yeah. he actually is talented as a storyteller to a degree that you're like, oh, this kid is special. He should make it out. That was a good story. That's the function of that scene is to be like, no, no, no. He really is going to be a writer. He actually, um, he can spin a yarn and it's a thing. His friends go, hey, Gordy, tell us one of your stories. And he works at it and he has these cool little stories. But I just loved the completely unnecessary lampooning of what I'm sure Stephen King feels like when you have fans or readers or critics who don't get it or whatever, the stupid questions were Rolodex so well and so specifically in their things that I've had as reactions to my writing that I'm like only a writer, you know, a career writer could complain about these things. Like the guy going, uh, no, I liked the ending. The barfing was really good. But then what happens to Lardass? And he's like, what do you mean? The story's over. And he's like, see, that's no good. He should go home and kill his father and join the Texas Rangers. He's right. like projecting what he would do yeah, or what, what he, he wants from do. his own life. And then the other kid's like, the story was fine, but there's just one detail that makes no sense. Did Lardass have to pay to enter the competition? And you're like, that doesn't matter. You <laughs> yeah. are focusing on the point of the story. Yeah. And, uh, Why I did actually, you like the story? <laughs> yeah, I think it was Stephen King just uh, sort of riffing on people who read his, his stories and don't get yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> he did a little bit of that in misery as well. It's like, it's just, Oh yeah. He she definitely is a lampoon of people who read the book and are like, I loved it for these reasons. And he face palms and go like, like okay. you missed the whole point. Yeah. <laughs> All right. I don't know what the fuck, why we're talking. Cause I'm talking about this thing. You're talking about that thing, but okay. Glad, <laughs> glad you, you saw liked the movie. it and turned yeah. it into whatever you wanted it to be. Cause yeah. if I say literally anything other than that, I'm just a dick. Mm -hmm. So I'm not going to say that, but yeah, it's true. Speaking of dicks, we've reached the end of this cock and, uh, that means it's time for our final spectrum. Unless you have anything you want to squeeze out before nope. the it gate let's, closes. Let's do the stand. All right. The Stand is the in ever-increasing in length segment, but still fairly short because this is but a baby podcast, uh, where we rank every Stephen King adaptation definitively from worst to best. And so far it is definitive because Abe and I have agreed in every case. Let's see if our rankings remain in lockstep this time. So starting from number one. I think we should start from number five. Well, we should pick. You're right. Should it, I? Should I think? It should, well, what's likely to change more? Probably the bottom of the list, right? I don't know, man. You <laughs> I think we can change it anytime. Let's just choose one for this one. All right, let's go bottom up. Rule. I like the bottom up for right now. Of the countdown. So number right. five, weakest Dream film we've catcher. covered so far. Dreamcatcher. Okay, yeah. I agree. Number four, the mist. The mist. Number, Number three, three misery. misery. <laughs> Number two, Stand, Stand by, by me. me. All right. And number one, and one the, the Shining. Shining. And Stand Still By Me, I got to say, it was nipping on the heel. It was gunning for The Shining, frankly. It was gunning. But The yeah. Shining is mythic in a way that I cannot deny. So I, The Shining still edges it out. But Stand <clears throat> By Me going above misery. That Above Misery. Yeah. I think I want to, I kind of want to justify this. I'm so glad you agree with me. I was coming in with like, I had a whole thing about, 
you know, like if you disagreed with me, mm-hmm. but I will say for the audience or anyone who disagrees with that. By a whole thing, that, he just means a beating. I had a beating Yeah, for I was going to beat him. Uh, <laughs> I put it at two. I keep, I still keep shining at one because Kubrick, and I want to say this once in a podcast just so I don't have to say it every time, but. Shiny's still at one due to the fact that Kubrick has the ability to evoke tone using the, and I should have said this during the Shining episode, he's ability to evoke tone just using the medium alone. Uh, what I be my, mean by that is that uh, this film evokes a lot of tonal resonance for me, but Kubrick dishes between real and unreal uh, which is, in my opinion, one of the hardest things to do in a movie. He mixes different qualities and disciplines of filmmaking to and makes them all cohesive in one film. It's Kubrick more virtuoso really, than this. He really was a weird, crazy genius yeah. on kind of another plane. It's true. I know, true. because it's, he's more engaging. I don't just mean this from like a like film student. I think there's a reason that people do like Kubrick who aren't like film students. Mm-hmm. And it took me almost this movie and really in looking at how, cause they couldn't be more different movies. Uh, what makes him so unique because it's more engaging and memorable to me because Kubrick can cue into what makes us like in the same, like 10 minutes, what makes us squirm, what makes us like wretch, what makes us just uneasy, what makes us hate something, what, or just what makes us excited. And it's like pinpoint precise. He's like a Formula One driver <laughs> kicking us constantly into different years. But you know, and he had a really hard time encompassing um, things like the deer scene. Like I can't think of a Kubrick moment that's about simple joy. That's not really his bag. So, that's not his bag, yeah. but yeah, that's well said. And I think in hindsight, we can comprehend it, but in the fresh viewing of it, it's just elegant and we're immersed in it. With Stand By Me, we know what's going on all the time. Like any casual viewer understands the tropes that we're talking about, understands the symbology, maybe not to elucidate it to that extent for different people. Maybe, you know, obviously there's people who can elucidate it even more eloquently, but like you understand it. It's all available to you because the, the film is just, it's not trying to do a deeper circumstance of like consideration. It's just meant to make you meditate on those moments. Kubrick, it makes you meditate on it and then makes you realize that why am I meditating? Oh shit. Now he's got me in a loop. Like he's Mm -hmm. fucking with you on a logical perspective because he understands how the brain works. This is more trying to take a snapshot of time and making us understand with hindsight, what was going on in a transition in every one of our lives and universalize it in a way that when you strike that chord, it resonates in the hearts of as many people as possible. I, right. I, that's what a, that's key to a coming of age story is you're not going to hit everyone, but you're trying to vagify it enough that the the concept of childhood passes through the theater and that spirit infects a yeah. lot of people and they go that was childhood, or at least some and, uh, facet of that resonated with what I see childhood to be. Yeah, exactly. And obviously, Kathy Bates' performance in Misery is singular. The story is super tight and efficient. Reiner's direction is transparent and doesn't demand your attention. The acting's arguably stronger across the board in misery, like moment by moment, but they're all adults with careers under their belt. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But it's also just a riff on a single premise. Mm -hmm. It's impressive and rich, the premise, but it doesn't resonate as this film does. At least this is just for me. 
because it reached his, reaches to every person and basically says, here's an ode to innocence and experience. Mm-hmm. It's not like, imagine what... Because that's more of what King does. King is usually imagine what, if, what imagine horror. this, yeah, yeah. And this is movie. This movie isn't imagine what horror. This movie is remember, remember. when, yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's and Dreamcatcher is Dreamcatcher. <laughs> it's just right, a guy yeah. making a fart sound with his mouth. That's all it is. Uh, Don't and, worry but the about fart it. has eyebrows, and it's asking for friction tape. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Who the fuck says friction Get tape? Get the friction tape. <laughs> Get uh, the friction tape. I think that's it for me. That's it. That's a, that's the sode as Tom Ryman has stuck in my head now. Mm. I think that's a sode. I think that's a sode. Dave, do you have any movies that deserve more hype for us? No? no? All right. Where go fuck you? yourself. Go fuck yourself. Uh, another Kings of King brought to fulmination. This was a good episode, man. Thank you. Yeah, this was fun. All right. Uh, yeah. Bye, everybody. Yeah, so long. This has been a Small Beans Endeavor. We're a bunch of pals who make podcasts, sketches, music, web series, and movies. The Beans always have new ideas percolating, so make sure to check us out at patreon.com slash smallbeans. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash smallbeans, where you can browse all of our current and past content, see what we've got planned in the future, and learn how your support can help the Small Beans grow into huge, giant monster beans if you enjoyed this content module please like rate subscribe or tell a friend about us we love you